This is the SFF Audio Podcast. This week's podcast is a recording of The Crawling Chaos by H.P. Lovecraft and Winifred V. Jackson. It's read for us by Wayne June. There will be discussion after the story. The Crawling Chaos by Winifred Virginia Jackson and H.P. Lovecraft Read by Wayne June Of the pleasures and pains of opium, much has been written. The ecstasies and horrors of De Quincey and the Paladis Artificielle of Baudelaire are preserved and interpreted with an art which makes them immortal, and the world knows well the beauty, the terror, and the mystery of those obscure realms into which the inspired dreamer is transported. But much as has been told, no man has yet dared intimate the nature of the phantasms thus unfolded to the mind, or hint at the direction of the unheard-of roads along whose ornate and exotic course the partaker of the drug is so irresistibly born. De Quincey was drawn back into Asia, that teeming land of nebulous shadows whose hideous antiquity is so impressive that, quote, the vast age of the race and name overpowers the sense of youth in the individual, close quote. But farther than that he dared not go. Those who have gone farther seldom returned, and even when they have they have been either silent or quite mad. I took opium but once, in the year of the plague, when doctors sought to deaden the agonies they could not cure. There was an overdose. My physician was worn out with horror and exertion, and I traveled very far indeed. In the end I returned and lived but my nights are filled with strange memories, nor have I ever permitted a doctor to give me opium again. The pain and pounding in my head had been quite unendurable when the drug was administered. Of the future I had no heed. To escape, whether by cure, unconsciousness, or death, was all that concerned me. I was partly delirious, so that it is hard to place the exact moment of transition. But I think that the effect must have begun shortly before the pounding ceased to be painful. As I have said, there was an overdose, so my reactions were probably far from normal. The sensation of falling, curiously dissociated from the idea of gravity or direction, was paramount, though there was a subsidiary impression of unseen throngs in incalculable profusion throngs of infinitely diverse nature, but all more or less related to me. Sometimes it seemed less as though I were falling than as though the universe or the ages were falling past me. Suddenly my pain ceased, and I began to associate the pounding with an external rather than internal force. The falling had ceased also, giving place to a sensation of uneasy, temporary rest. And when I listened closely, I fancied the pounding was that of the vast, inscrutable sea, as its sinister, colossal breakers lacerated some desolate shore after a storm of titanic magnitude. Then I opened my eyes. For a moment my surroundings seemed confused, like a projected image hopelessly out of focus. 
But gradually I realized my solitary presence in a strange and beautiful room lighted by many windows. Of the exact nature of the apartment I could form no idea, for my thoughts were still far from settled. But I noticed varicolored rugs and draperies, elaborately fashioned tables, chairs, ottomans, and divans, and delicate vases and ornaments which conveyed a suggestion of things exotic without actually being alien. These things I noticed, yet they were not long uppermost in my mind, slowly but inexorably crawling upon my consciousness, and rising above every other impression came a dizzying fear of the unknown, a fear all the greater because I could not analyze it, and seeming to concern a stealthily approaching menace, not death, but some nameless, unheard-of thing, inexpressibly more ghastly and abhorrent. Presently I realized that the direct symbol and excitement of my fear was the hideous pounding whose incessant reverberations throbbed maddeningly against my exhausted brain. It seemed to come from a point outside and below the edifice in which I stood, and to associate itself with the most terrifying mental images. I felt that some horrible scene or object lurked beyond the silk-hung walls and shrank from glancing through the arched, latticed windows that opened so bewilderingly on every hand. Perceiving shutters attached to these windows, I closed them all, averting my eyes from the exterior as I did so. Then, employing a flint and steel which I found on one of the small tables, I lit the many candles reposing on the walls in arabesque sconces. The added sense of security brought by closed shutters and artificial light calmed my nerves to some degree, but I could not shut out the monotonous pounding. Now that I was calmer, the sound became as fascinating as it was fearful, and I felt a contradictory desire to seek out its source despite my still powerful shrinking. Opening a portiere at the side of the room nearest the pounding, I beheld a small and richly draped corridor ending in a carven door and large oriel window. To this window I was irresistibly drawn, though my ill-defined apprehension seemed almost equally bent on holding me back. As I approached, I could see a chaotic whirl of waters in the distance. Then, as I attained it and glanced out on all sides, the stupendous picture of my surroundings burst upon me with full and devastating force. I beheld such a sight as I had never beheld before, and which no living person can have seen save in the delirium of fever or the inferno of opium. The building stood on a narrow point of land, or what was now a narrow point of land, fully three hundred feet above what must lately have been the seething vortex of mad waters. On either side of the house there fell a newly washed-out precipice of red earth, whilst ahead of me the hideous waves were still rolling in frightfully, eating away the land with ghastly monotony and deliberation. Out a mile or more there rose and fell menacing breakers at least fifty feet in height, and on the far horizon ghoulish black clouds of grotesque contour were resting and brooding like unwholesome vultures. The waves were dark and purplish, almost black, and clutched at the yielding red mud on the bank as if with uncouth, greedy hands. I could not but feel that some noxious marine mind had declared a war of extermination upon all the solid ground, perhaps abetted by the angry sky. 
Recovering at length from the stupor into which this unnatural spectacle had thrown me, I realized that my actual physical danger was acute. Even whilst I gazed, the bank had lost many feet, and it could not be long before the house would fall undermined into that awful pit of lashing waves. Accordingly, I hastened to the opposite side of the edifice, and finding a door, emerged at once, locking it after me with a curious key which had hung inside. I now beheld more of the strange region about me, and marked a singular division which seemed to exist in the hostile ocean and firmament. On each side of the jutting promontory different conditions held sway. At my left, as I faced inland, was a gently heaving sea with great green waves rolling peacefully in under a brightly shining sun. Something about that sun's nature and position made me shudder but I could not then tell, and cannot tell now, what it was. At my right also was the sea, but it was blue, calm, and only gently undulating, while the sky above it was darker and the washed-out bank more nearly white than reddish. I now turned my attention to the land and found occasion for fresh surprise, for the vegetation resembled nothing I had ever seen or read about. It was apparently tropical, or at least subtropical, a conclusion borne out by the intense heat of the air. Sometimes I thought I could trace strange analogies with the flora of my native land, fancying that the well-known plants and shrubs might assume such forms under a radical change of climate. But the gigantic and omnipresent palm trees were plainly foreign. The house I had just left was very small, hardly more than a cottage but its material was evidently marble, and its architecture was weird and composite, involving a quaint fusion of western and eastern forms. At the corners were Corinthian columns, but the red-tile roof was like that of a Chinese pagoda. From the door inland there stretched a path of singularly white sand, about four feet wide, and lined on either side with stately palms and unidentifiable flowering shrubs and plants. It lay toward the side of the promontory where the sea was blue and the bank rather whitish. Down this path I felt impelled to flee as if pursued by some malignant spirit from the pounding ocean. At first it was slightly uphill. Then I reached a gentle crest. Behind me I saw the scene I had left. The entire point with the cottage and the black water with the green sea on one side and the blue sea on the other. And a curse unnamed and unnameable, lowering over all. I never saw it again, and often wonder. After this last look, I strode ahead and surveyed the inland panorama before me. The path, as I have intimated, ran along the right-hand shore as one went inland. Ahead and to the left I now viewed a magnificent valley comprising thousands of acres and covered with a swaying growth of tropical grass higher than my head. Almost at the limit of vision was a colossal palm tree which seemed to fascinate and beckon me. By this time, wonder and escape from the imperiled peninsula had largely dissipated my fear, but as I paused and sank fatigued into the path, idly digging with my hands into the warm, whitish-golden sand, a new and acute sense of danger seized me. Some terror in the swishing tall grass seemed added to that of the diabolically pounding sea, and I started up crying aloud and disjointedly, Tiger! Tiger! Is it tiger? Beast! Beast! Is it a beast that I am afraid of? 
My mind wandered back to an ancient and classical story of tigers which I had read. I strove to recall the author, but had difficulty. And in the midst of my fear, I remembered that the tale was by Rudyard Kipling, nor did the grotesqueness of deeming him an ancient author occur to me. I wished for the volume containing this story, and had almost started back toward the doomed cottage to procure it when my better sense and the lure of the palm prevented me. Whether or not I could have resisted the backward beckoning without the counter-fascination of the vast palm tree, I do not know. This attraction was now dominant, and I left the path and crawled on my hands and knees down the valley's slope, despite my fear of the grass and the serpents it might contain. I resolved to fight for life and reason as long as possible against all menaces of sea or land, though I sometimes feared defeat as the maddening swish of the uncanny grasses joined the still audible and irritating pounding of the distant breakers. I would frequently pause and put my hands to my ears for relief, but could never quite shut out the detestable sound. It was, as it seemed to me, only after ages that I finally dragged myself to the beckoning palm tree and lay quiet beneath its protecting shade. There now ensued a series of incidents which transported me to the opposite extremes of ecstasy and horror. Incidents which I tremble to recall and dare not seek to interpret. No sooner had I crawled beneath the overhanging foliage of the palm than there dropped from its branches a young child of such beauty as I have never beheld before. Though ragged and dusty, this being bore the features of a fawn or demigod and seemed almost to diffuse a radiance in the dense shadow of the tree. But before I could arise and speak, I heard in the upper air the exquisite melody of singing, notes high and low, blent with a sublime and ethereal harmoniousness. The sun had by this time sunk below the horizon, and in the twilight I saw that an aureola of lambent light encircled the child's head. Then, in a tone of silver, it addressed me. It is the end. They have come down through the gloaming from the stars. Now all is over, and beyond the Oranurian streams we shall dwell blissfully in Telo. As the child spoke, I beheld a soft radiance through the leaves of the palm tree, and rising, greeted a pair whom I knew to be the chief singers among those I had heard. A god and a goddess they must have been, for such beauty is not mortal. And they took my hands, saying, Come, child, you have heard the voices, and all is well. In Telo, beyond the Milky Way and the Oranurian streams, are cities all of amber and chalcedony. Upon their domes of many facets glisten the images of strange and beautiful stars. Under the ivory bridges of Talo flow rivers of liquid gold, bearing pleasure barges bound for blossomy Cytherion of the Seven Suns, and in Talo and Cytherion abide only youth, beauty, and pleasure, nor are any sounds heard save of laughter, song, and the lute. Only the gods dwell in Talo of the golden rivers, but among them shalt thou dwell. As I listened, enchanted, I suddenly became aware of a change in my surroundings. The palm tree, so lately overshadowing my exhausted form, was now some distance to my left and considerably below me. 
I was obviously floating in the atmosphere, companioned not only by the strange child and the radiant pair, but by a constantly increasing throng of half-luminous, vine-crowned youths and maidens with wind-blown hair and joyful countenance. We slowly ascended together as if borne on a fragrant breeze which blew not from the earth but from the golden nebulae, and the child whispered in my ear that I must look always upward to the pathways of light and never backwards to the sphere I had just left. The youths and maidens now chanted mellifluous choriambics to the accompaniment of lutes, and I felt enveloped in a peace and happiness more profound than any I had in life imagined. When the intrusion of a single sound altered my destiny and shattered my soul, through the ravishing strains of the singers and the lutenist, as if in mocking demoniac concord throbbed from gulfs below the damnable, the detestable pounding of that hideous ocean, and as those black breakers beat their message into my ears, I forgot the words of the child and looked back down upon the doomed scene from which I thought I had escaped. Down through the aether I saw the accursed earth turning, ever turning, with angry and tempestuous seas gnawing at wild, desolate shores and dashing foam against the tottering towers of deserted cities. And under a ghastly moon there gleamed sights I can never describe, sights I can never forget, deserts of corpse-like clay and jungles of ruin and decadence where once stretched the populous plains and villages of my native land and maelstroms of frothing ocean where once rose the mighty temples of my forefathers. Around the northern pole streamed a morass of noisome growths and miasmal vapors, hissing before the onslaught of the ever-mounting waves that curled and fretted from the shuddering deep. Then a rending report claved the night, and athwart the desert of deserts appeared a smoking rift. Still the black ocean foamed and gnawed, eating away the desert on either side as the rift in the center widened and widened. There was now no land left but the desert, and still the fuming ocean ate and ate. All at once I thought even the pounding sea seemed afraid of something, afraid of dark gods of the inner earth that are greater than the evil god of waters. But even if it was, it could not turn back, and the desert had suffered too much from those nightmare waves to help them now. So the ocean ate the last of the land and poured into the smoking gulf, thereby giving up all it had ever conquered. From the newly flooded lands it flowed again, uncovering death and decay, and from its ancient and immemorial bed it trickled loathsomely, uncovering Nighted secrets of the years when time was young, and the gods unborn. Above the waves rose weedy remembered spires. The moon laid pale lilies of light on dead London, and Paris stood up from its damp grave to be sanctified with stardust. Then rose spires and monoliths that were weedy but not remembered, terrible spires and monoliths of lands that men never knew were lands. There was not any pounding now but only the unearthly roaring and hissing of waters tumbling into the rift. The smoke of that rift had changed to steam and almost hid the world as it grew denser and denser. It seared my face and hands, and when I looked to see how it affected my companions, I found they had all disappeared. Then very suddenly it ended.
and I knew no more till I awakened upon a bed of convalescence. As the cloud of steam from the plutonic gulp finally concealed the entire surface from my sight, all the firmament shrieked at a sudden agony of mad reverberations which shook the trembling aether. In one delirious flash and burst it happened, one blinding, deafening holocaust of fire, smoke, and thunder that dissolved the wan moon as it sped outward to the void. And when the smoke cleared away, and I sought to look upon the earth, I beheld against the background of cold, humorous stars, only the dying sun and the pale, mournful planets searching for their sister. I'm Jesse. I'm Tamahome. I'm Jim Moon of the Hypnobobs podcast. And this is Wayne June. You're the narrator of the story we just heard. The actually, voice, I am. The voice of Lovecraft. I think that's actually how you should be um, remembered. I'm we not should dead be, yet. Not remembered. <laughs> no well, I thought we were digging, going down into your grave like uh, Randolph Carter um, <laughs> and uh, his buddy. And I'm still alive. <laughs> so, uh, what were your first, first impressions of uh, of the story? I found it hard to get into at the beginning. Uh, there's, I, I, I find that of a lot of Lovecraft. I find it hard to get into at the beginning, and then I get started, and I'm like, oh, okay. You know, it's it's sort of your your shift down like six years to get into the, uh, you know, the forty word sentence. And, yeah, and, uh, and then you sort of get into that mode, and you, you you go along at the at the speed that he he has you going at, and and then I found it you know completely fascinating. You know what I did? I I listened to it, and I didn't quite understand it, so I went to the Wikipedia for it. I was like, "Wow, that's the plot!" And then I went back <laughs> the second time. I was like, "Oh yeah, this is really trippy, man." I think we were gonna definitely gonna have to link link to the plot. Um, and uh, of course, uh, I actually printed out the, uh, the story as well. And then um, by the by the second time I'd gone through it, it was like, oh yeah, this is I understand everything that's happening, and that really surprises me because nothing makes sense. Right? It, <laughs> it's total dream logic. Jim, yeah, it's an opium I, vision. It, an opium. Yeah, vision. Sorry. yeah, yeah. Wayne. Yes. You were going to say something. Um, that's exactly what I was going to say is that, uh, you know, it is, uh, supposed, supposed to be a, uh, the, the relation of his opium dream. And, uh, you know, that's, uh, I guess that pretty is, it's pretty self-explanatory in terms of the trippiness, but, um, it, it actually relates to something we were talking about before we actually started recording, which is, uh, the, the philosophy behind uh, some of his ideas, that's, that's really what makes it really creepy. And yeah, and yeah, once, definitely. Once you do get, get what he is saying or where he's coming from, uh, it's, um, it, a lot easier to, to flow with him. The, I found that that story had a lot of similarities to some Edgar Allan Poe things that I've read. Uh, the, uh, particularly there's, there's one poem called The Haunted Palace. Oh yes, yes. And uh, 
the way that that the Poe poem has struck me is uh, what he's really talking about in the haunted palace is uh, the self, the self as haunted palace, my psyche, I my, love it. my mind as as being, uh, you know, a, a haunted, plagued by 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 my existence in the world, you know. That making any sense? Yeah, it's it's totally resonating. I haven't read that poem. I, I really I feel like Poe is the guy who I I need to study and haven't done anything with other than you know just the the ones that everybody knows. He can be hard too. I mean, I, I think that's part partially a uh, a cultural thing. Uh, he's so nineteenth century uh, that uh, you know he's got a lot of flowery verbiage and. Uh, Terrific. I love that stuff, but I just haven't gotten into it. And that this sounds like a really good place to start with his poetry, other than you know the Raven and all the other ones that everybody knows. Yeah, I also uh, found some of uh, the uh, structure of this story seemed to not so much borrow from, but be influenced by uh, the fall of the House of Usher. I don't know if you've read that. A long time ago, yeah. But that's another one where he's using. The environment and surroundings, I think, sort of as a, a metaphor for for our existence in the world. And in uh, in this uh, Lovecraft story, uh, he's he's continually harping on how horrible the waves are, the crashing of the waves and the booming of the waves. And uh, it, to me, to me, that sort of struck the chord of well, what he's feeling there, or trying to make us feel, is. Uh, you know the uh, entropy of our existence. You Absolutely, know, the, the fact that uh, life is just occurring and and wearing us down, and it's we're sort of I don't know uh, placed in the position of a victim almost, uh, and just experiencing what what is being thrown at us. And anybody else got any thoughts on that? Uh, I think that that sounds exactly right. The ending of this story does, I think, what you know, what you're saying about, uh, I don't think Lovecraft has a philosophy that um, is like a, a structured argument as to as to how one should go about understanding the world. Rather, he says, here's what I think is happening in the world, and isn't it terrible? Um, yeah, exactly. It, there is no meaning in the universe other than we we are going to experience an evil sort of pain of loneliness and non-existent uh, an uncaring universe that actually has, at best, malicious or uncaring interest in us. Exactly. And, and then that ending is like, ouch, right? I think yeah. you, you, you added the, um, the music at the end that uh, really, I think, sort of echoed that, oh, crap. That's, yeah. that's it. <laughs> oh, those, and all the, all the planets mourned. It's like, wow, planets are even mourning here. Yeah, and that's that's him all over, and that uh, that whole theme goes throughout. Uh, I think everything of Lovecraft's is you hit it right on the head when you said uncaring. It's like it's not that the universe is against you, uh, or that you know the the gods or demons or whoever uh, are out to get you. They just don't care that you're there. You don't matter, you know. And 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 that's a feeling that you know. If you were really to go through life believing that, you know, you would 
you need a lot of Prozac to, <laughs> <laughs> to meet your morning. A you lot know? of opium, but not too much. <laughs> yeah. Right. I think I need some Prozac right now. I I guess I I think there's some people who they have sort of um, less sunnier dispositions than me. And for me, when I read a sort of a depressing story or watch a depressing movie, I feel good. <laughs> like I I say, oh yeah, that's over. I feel great. <laughs> well, I mean, so much well, better a, than that. Well, there's a catharsis in seeing the world end, <laughs> yeah, especially that. in a story like this where it's so poetically rendered um it's not just it's the apocalypse it's horrible it's the apocalypse it's cosmic yeah that's not it, isn't it beautiful what a beautiful end uh to this horror <laughs> um definitely now uh going back to what you said uh earlier i think that, that was the coolest part for me was was finding the metaphor in what is so obviously uh you know a dream i mean this it make this plot doesn't it's really just a jumble of junk right it's a jumble of junk there's a palm tree there's a youth who has a fawn face there's uh uh you know a sea that's on one side is blue and nice and on the other side is purple and horrible and there's a sun and you know and then there's the 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 sort of the dreamlike names tilo i'm going to tilo oh yeah what's tilo (laughs) you know doesn't matter it's got seven suns i like it um There's, there's two things uh that, that that just reminded me of. One is that uh, the sort of the theme uh, of it, the way the, the, the arc of the story goes, um, is almost a, a, a biblical reference in there. Oh, yeah. Where, uh, he's, he's sort of, um, he's experiencing the dream. He's, he's in, uh, you know, this, uh, this weird environment that on one side is being, tossed away and and eaten away at uh and um then he meets up with uh whoever that uh ethereal child is <laughs> and he's got sort of his chance at redemption there you know he's going to be taken to Tilo and uh, uh only the gods reside there but you will be there also mm-hmm. uh, you know it's a very uh old testament vibe there and don't look back because you know don't look back at the uh, at the deteriorating material world just Lest uh, you turn to a pillar of salt exactly so mm-hmm. <laughs> we got him doing why, the old why does he salt. why does he get to yeah. go why do they pick Say, him what's so special uh, about him uh i think everybody got to go there all the all the nice people oh i thought he was the only one that's no, he he lucked out because he 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 left that little beach house and <laughs> uh, I I think yeah but, I, I think so too and and it was more of a universal application I don't think it was uh, saying he it was you know uh, one individual I, I you know I could be wrong you know I, I've been full of crap before well <laughs> so, uh, I think I think I think he was the the protagonist in there is supposed to be us you know mankind the human yeah, experience. Mm-hmm. Um, um, there's also there's also a thing in um, a few Lovecraft stories where you have a narrator who's an ordinary guy in our world who has a vision or goes through a portal and he swaps places with somebody in some far future other realm right. <laughs> or yeah, other place and it's kind of this kind of vision of an uh, an apocalypse of civilization. You get similar accounts in the Shadow Out of Time and there's a short story, um, uh, Polaris. 
and Beyond the Wall of Sleep, where you similarly get people getting these visions of the future, as it were, of the ultimate cosmic fate of civilization. Yep. So it could be one of those sort of a proto, one of these sort of trans transcendental mind swap stories in there. Well, what let's um talk about the history of the story first. You know, so this we we're thinking it's H.P. Lovecraft, H.P. Lovecraft, but actually it's not just him. It's it, he gets second billing to someone named uh, Jackson, um, but her name is not. Uh, Actually, uh, no, her name really is Jackson, but it wasn't credited to Jackson. Uh, she's got a pseudonym as well. It's Virginia... Yeah, Elizabeth Barclay. Elizabeth Barclay, that's right. So yeah. why, why yeah. does she have this... And, and Louis <clears throat> Theobald, uh, comma, June, oh, she, period. She, she was good in Showgirls. <laughs> uh, not the same one, is my oh. guess. Unless she's a vampire or something. <laughs> Um, so it was originally credited to Elizabeth Berkeley or Barclay and Louis Theobald, comma, June period, J-U-N period. So I, I don't even know what that means. I think that, I think that means junior. Um, junior. Okay. Okay. Mm. That's an old way of saying junior. So Louis Theobald Jr.'s Lovecraft and Elizabeth Barclay is, I want to say Victoria Jackson, but that's not right. Winifred? It's Winifred. Winifred yeah, Victoria yeah. Jackson. That's right. Mm. Okay. So my understanding is that she had a dream. She writes a letter to Lovecraft saying, I loved your story called The Crawling... Oh, no, uh, Nyarlothotep. Um, and I like the line you described him as Crawling Chaos. I, here's a dream I had, and I took the title from Nyarlothotep, calling it The Crawling Chaos. Um, and, and here it is. And then Lovecraft says, oh, this is great. Send me some money and we'll, uh, I'll write you up a story for it or something like that. Right? <laughs> that he's, he's always trying to make some money because, uh, and, and he's got all these fans who write him and, you know, I, I, hey, if, if I sent Lovecraft one of my dreams, I'd certainly send him some money too to write it up, you know? <laughs> good service. But I think that's what's happening. So you could, I think you can see in the story, if you're familiar with Lovecraft, you can definitely pick out him. Uh, I, I think if I were to go through it with a highlighter, I could probably, you know, uh, 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 separate the two. All say the this. adjectives are him. Oh yeah, absolutely. All the all the colors are probably her, and uh, well, maybe not, but uh, a lot of the colors are probably her. And you know, the palm tree. I thought that that was an alien. Of, uh, I was, uh, it's not a palm tree. It's going to be an alien or something. <laughs> something yeah. weird, but it's just a palm tree. Really yeah, a, lot, a lot of the story, I think, uh, wasn't, and maybe it was because it was early in his career, A, and also it's a collaboration, that, that the, the story itself, uh, you know, isn't all that well developed. There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of dross in there, I think. Well, I think if, if you look at it as a, um, as a regular story, it's terrible. But I think the, the effect it has, is very powerful uh, because I was I was like holy crap this is uh, good Lovecraft you know it's it's it hit me where I like my Lovecraft hit it's yeah. it's uh it's delivering on the goods but uh, there are lots of segments that you say well, wh how does that help with the overall story but um the, I wanted to tell you about the part that hit me and it actually hit me again when you you said um you mentioned the Poe poem the haunted palace so. What I started thinking was, okay, the guy takes opium too much uh, in the year of the plague. 
so he's he has extreme pain from some plague, I guess. Mm-hmm. I don't know what this plague is, but it's causing him extreme pain. Extreme pain. He takes the drug and then he goes into a delirium, feels like he's falling, and then he wakes up in a room, a chamber, um, that is well well decorated, right, with familiar and yet unfamiliar furnishings. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I wonder where he is. And then, and then he can hear things outside, but he doesn't. He doesn't go there just yet. And after he lights the candles within this room, which is somewhere in the future, which is kind of weird that that candles going still, he opens a chambered a uh, small door and walks through a draped passageway to a a special word, an oriole. Is that the word for it? A window. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So an or. Is that how it's pronounced, Oriole? Um, yeah. I, I don't have it in front of me, but I think it is. So he says, "To this window, I was irresistibly drawn, though my ill-defined apprehension seemed almost equally bent back and holding me. As I approached it, I could see a chaotic swirl, whirl of waters in the distance. Then, as I attained it and glanced out on all sides, the stupendous picture of my surroundings burst upon me with full, devastating force." Now, um, this. Oh, uh, yeah, he goes through a portiere, portiere, and then he goes to a large oriole window. And I wasn't familiar with an oriole window, but what the term was, so I looked it up, and and then I saw, okay, it's one of those projections out of a building that allows you to sort of have a window seat. Uh, It sticks out of the building and uh, gives you a better view. Instead of just a flat, uh, you know, view through a window, you're actually able to see off to your left and off to your right and up above and down below. And then I realized, oh, he's in his own brain. That room <laughs> was his brain, right? Yep, yep, and yep, then yep. he goes down the draped passageway, which is his like optic nerve, and he steps into his eye and looks outside. And what does he see? He sees the world. And I thought, holy crap, that's cool. Yeah, that uh, I, I hadn't thought of it, but that, that's a further extension of that, uh, of that metaphor. You know, I mean... Uh, I think the the opium was a device to get him uh, into this state, so he could talk about all these things uh, and perhaps justify some of the hallucinogenic quality of the of the pictures he was painting. But ultimately, he he looks out this window into his environment and finds that uh, you know. The the whole of human existence is the crawling chaos, you know. <laughs> Holy cow! Calm down, Howard. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, it's a, it's interesting too because the title doesn't, uh, you know. I thought I thought there's going to be a a creature, right? Uh, from the title, I thought, oh, there's going to be a creature on the land somewhere, or yeah. there's going to be something coming out of the sea, or there's something horrible. But it, the word crawling crops up a couple of times in the story, and the first time um, it's not really noticeable, but the second time, it's him who's cr- or it could be a her it, it, the narrator has no gender, so let's yeah. assume it's a him, for some reason and he is, for no reason at all that I can understand is crawling through the jungle He's not. he hasn't been injured there's no earthquakes but he's decided to crawl towards this palm tree 
I was like, well, wait, is he the crawling chaos? Maybe <laughs> the human beings are the crawling chaos. And what the hell's with all that, uh, that noise? You know, that, that's the only constant throughout the, the, the trip he's on. <laughs> and that is it, what it is. It's a trip, right? Is that pounding, that ocean pounding. I think, oh, that's his heart. That's his, his blood. Yeah, the, the metaphor is wonderful. I mean, it, it, mm. you, you can take that as deep as you want, and it all comes down to, you know, his, his heart beating is like the ocean beating against the sand and just tearing away the sand because ultimately the end of a beating heart is like the end of an, of an unstable beach in a storm. It's nothing. It's chaos. It's, you know, we're all doomed. Yeah, yeah that sounds about right. Mm. So and the clock winding down. <laughs> that that that's what makes his uh, his his fiction really creepy. Is uh, I think you were saying before that you know it takes you a while sometimes to 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 get on board with him, uh, but once you do and once you see where it's going, it's like you know it it just gives you that much more respect for for the man to be able to take th this melodramatic fear. You know this primal fear, and actually communicate it like that is mm -hmm. you know, that that that's one reason he's one of my favorite authors ever. Mine too. So the crawling chaos is his own blood. Is that what you're saying? Well, um, could be. <laughs> I think it's subject to you know your interpretation. I think there is. I think the you know if we're looking at the technical answer, the the technical answer is it's just the title, um, but. There, there is no creature. There is no creature that could be slapped with a name, the crawling chaos, unless it's mankind uh, hey. and the the earth. Yeah, actually, when you when you Google the crawling chaos, it comes up with Nyarlathotep. Uh, yeah, I guess that's so, in different mm -hmm. stories, but it's that's also referred story, right? to the crawling chaos as well. Right, and that's where that's where sh um, Jackson took the uh, the title from. Oh, okay. Uh, it was in, in that story. And so, um, the, the other things that's kind of strange is, um, and I, I, I was reading, um, S.D. Joshi's, uh, Joshi, is that how it's pronounced? Um, his, uh, his introduction to the crawling chaos. Um, and he said that, that the, um, the story was, Interesting, except he thought that the 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 introduction of uh, how we know what time is set was sort of uninspired and weak. Uh, so w we find out that this is the future, right? He's he's not just uh, you know having a brain trip in his own head. He's actually taking a trip to the future of mankind somehow. And the way he understands this is. By introducing um, Richard Kipling, mentioning Kipling's name, uh, yeah. and and having that sort of lay there, and then and then he says, "Oh, and Kipling, of course, was an ancient author." And I was thinking, "Well, it's not ancient, right?" <laughs> um, oh, okay. So he's setting the, setting it in the future, and then he wants to go back to the to the peninsular um, house. I guess it is. The shack on the beach uh, to get the book, and uh, that's the most dreamy sequence of all, right? You're in the middle of this world-ending destruction, and you say, "Oh, I got to go back for that book." That sounds exactly like every dream I've had, you know. Yeah. 
Doesn't he have an ebook reader? <laughs> I don't know. Future. Um, he doesn't have uh, electricity, so probably not. Um, and then uh, he says, um, "Tiger, tiger," and there you've got the. Is it a tiger? Beast, beast. Is it a beast that I am afraid of? Um, and then he's saying that that's from a Rudyard Kipling story. Now, the only Rudyard Kipling story I know with a tiger in it is from the Jungle Book. Right. Um, Shere yeah. Khan, right? I is thought he was going to say Walt Whitman. Mm. Tiger, tiger. Uh, is, that ti- is that Walt Whitman? The tiger, tiger, burning bright? Right. Uh, William Blake. Blake. Oh, William Blake, right. sorry. Blake. Burning bright. But, uh... Which which I think is where the line Tiger Tiger comes from mm. there. And and also the title of the Richard Kipling story in the uh the jungle book uh is Tiger Tiger Tiger. Um Oh so um I I, I thought yeah, it was sort of uh, a clunky way of showing that it was the future. Yeah, a matter of fact, uh, I totally missed that. So thank you. <laughs> but that yeah, that was too. one of the parts that I attributed to. I'm like, uh, this, you know, why is this here? Uh, mm, uh, I, I I attributed it to the his co-writer there because it didn't sound like uh, like Lovecraft or an idea of his. But. I think you're probably right. I think it probably isn't. Uh, I think it was probably in her dream. And he's, you know, he says, okay, I got to work with this material. Okay. But, I, I like the observation about, uh, you know, all of a sudden Kipling as, is being referred to as ancient and that puts it in the future. I haven't even thought of that. That's great. Well, like it has that. to be, uh, you know, he ha- if he wants to set it at the end of, if, if, if it's a, like a prediction, which makes it more powerful, right? Then right. the, um, that has it. And then, um, when he finally gets off that beach and into the jungle and past the tiger, which, really apparently isn't a threat um, because he just stops thinking about it and it goes away. Um, he gets to the palm tree and out of the palm tree falls a a youth. The most beautiful a, youth you've ever seen. Right. And I was thinking, oh, is this Mowgli? <laughs> 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 Falling out of the palm tree? Uh, and then and then the the youth says, this is something that totally sounds like was in, in the dream because it sounds like dream Dream talk. It is the end. They have come down through the glo- through the gloaming from the stars. Now all is over, and beyond the Aurorian streams, we shall dwell blissfully in Tilo. And that sounds like total dream talk because, first of all, we don't know who they are. Um, did they come to end the earth? Who are they? Or maybe they are the nice people, right? The people who are taking us away. The, the way that whole segment struck me was that was uh, that was his glimpse of that's his his chance at uh, at redemption. That's the the spiritual aspect of things. Uh, the they're not worrying about material world, but you know this is my chance at at redemption or the for the redemption of humanity to escape the crawling chaos of the pounding waves and and the uh useless exist uncaring existence you know finally okay we're we're headed somewhere but then he looks back and blows it boom he's you know and yeah it's it's kind of it is strange because it does it mean that because this youth is not 
wholly human. Um, I, it also reminded me of, uh, you guys probably know this, uh, the time machine. With, mm-hmm. um, oh, the Eloy. Yeah, it's the, it's mm. Weena, right? Um, it yeah, also, yeah. I don't think it ever says it's a he, and it's sort of the youth, and it's, um, it talks weird talk and, uh, lives in a society that's, uh, you know, sort of on the edge of destruction. Um, and, and then of course later in the time machine, he actually does go to the end of the world, right? He goes to the end of the universe or the end of earth mm. and the sun is bloated in the sky and the, he's on a beach and, and there's a crawling creature crawling out of the sea. And so I thought, oh, well, this is kind of the time machine. Maybe, um, that's what Winifred Virginia Jackson had read before she went to bed that night. <laughs> and then she's thinking, you know, the beach tropical and, and then it sort of gets all these, these sort of dream words. Arurian. Erinurian. Sounds like a word. It's, I looked it up. It's only in this story. And Tilo. Yeah, I was wondering that, that there, those names were referred to in any, any other story. Not as far as I can tell. I've, I've got a stretch for Tilo. I don't know uh, if this would hold up to examination or not. But uh, I, I looked it up too, and of course could find it nowhere. But uh, there's something vaguely reminiscent about the word. Um, and then I thought... Teleology? Yeah, teleological, which mm-hmm. is... is uh, so it's... Um, the source is what it means, like... Um, telos... Um, it's Greek. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah, te- yeah. Theology is uh, it's a, a, a train of thought, a school of thought, where I think you're yeah, Aristotle, at, really, right? Yeah, and you're looking, you're looking at purpose. You're, you're not saying uh, what is this in terms of a situation or existence or being or the world. You're not saying uh, how, uh, but you're you're saying why is there a purpose to it? So I think you know maybe. Tilo, and once again, I could be wrong, but uh, it might be a reference to, you know, this uh, this spiritual aspect of, of man's thought or man's existence reaching towards some meaning or purpose. And once again, that'll add another shadow to the story because, of course, he falls away from that and uh, it's the end of humanity, the end of the world at the, at the end of the story. But I don't know if there's any validity to that, or if I'm just reading too much into it. But well, you know, I, I think you're allowed to read into it when when it's so, you know. There, it, that's what I thought. I thought was is this like to, is like to the to the end, went to the to the purpose, and, and if you think of it as the end, right, that actually makes sense. Heaven is the end, right? And and this is a is a heaven of some kind. It's actually a fairly interesting description. Of the what Tilo looks like, uh, I, and I looked up. So I, I know what Amber is, but I didn't know what Chalcedony is. And Chalcedony, um, uh, let me read the description here. It says, um, "Come, child, you have heard the voices, and 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 now is the this the is this creature a god and goddess? Are they talking to? Are they talking to the child and um, our narrator, or are they just talking to the narrator when they say child? Right?" That's why I was thinking. These these are like friendly gods, right? A god and goddess, they must have been, for such beauty is not mortal. And they took my hand saying, come child, right? It sounds like they're talking to him. The narrator. Yeah. You have heard the voices, and all is well. 
In Tilo, beyond the Milky Way and the Arurian streams, are cities of Amber and Chalcedony. And so I looked up Chalcedony, and it, it's very similarly colored to uh, Amber. And they're both sort of flesh-colored, sort of, um, you know, Amberish. Uh, so you make a city out of Chalcedony and Amber. Uh, that sounds like, you know, a city made of Amber is not... It's just a color, right? So what they're really meaning is it's heaven, I think. And upon yeah. the domes of the many facets glisten the images of strange and beautiful stars. Okay. Under the ivory bridges of Tilo flow rivers of liquid gold. Oh, okay. Bearing pleasure barges bound for blossomy Cytherion of the Seven Suns. It's like, wow, that sounds trippy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, th I think that's no, that's no accident there either, because uh, that that whole section, uh, the the language, uh, you know, the the rivers of of, uh, of liquid gold, and uh, mm -hmm. I don't I don't think he was talking about the furniture polish there. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it smells uh, like heaven, and yeah. and it, it it's very reminiscent about the apocalyptic uh, of the apocalyptic literature. Uh, which describe you know like the book of revelation which which describes you know heaven as as being uh you know gates of pearl and precious stone and streets paved with gold and and the whole thing you know it's a, it's a very heaven uh land of oz type of uh, of picture and and i think that's you know that's what he's trying to paint with that it's also very reminiscent the imaging language of uh, one of lovecraft's big influences lord dunsany who wrote lots of these proto fantasy tales uh, in a similar kind of this sort of biblical exotic language? Um, and I'm, I'm in full agreement that the uh, the heavenly host. I think the yeah, idea the heavenly that host that's that nice uh, Tilo really able to tell us that wouldn't surprise me. Lovecraft, you know, greatly admired the ancient Greeks and the Romans and. So my impression is it's kind of this heavenly host that are departing. They're the sum of knowledge and art going to a permanent place beyond the physical. Yeah. And it's, you know, the law of the physical and the entropy is what dooms the narrator because he can't, he doesn't continue with the rising song and go on to Tilo. He looks back and gets drawn back into watching the destruction of the physical. It's, it's, um, yeah. And then as he's looking down, uh, there's the corpse-like clay, right? It's um, it, it's the earth. Uh, the the it's very graphic description of how the earth is destroyed. Is the sea is fighting the land? Then the ocean, the land underneath the ocean opens up, and all the all the land claimed by the sea pours in, and it's like they're they're fighting over who will destroy the earth. And earlier on, when we get the description from the window, there's the the sea is is eating the land, and then the clouds, the black clouds, are like vultures, right, waiting for yeah, the yeah. land to be eaten, and they're conspiring together. Mm. And it's like that is the that is Lovecraft's view of the universe: is that um, there everything's out to get you, and it doesn't care that you're even in that building. That that doesn't really <laughs> matter. It's right. not you particularly. It's just you're toast. Yeah, uh, he, uh, matter of fact, he's got an article that he had written, uh, that I'm sure you're probably familiar with somewhat is, uh, supernatural horror in literature. Mm, that's oh, on yeah, the yeah. challenge for mm -hmm. this year. 
it, it, it sort of uh, uh, you know gives his take on on the whole thing. And you know, if you're interested in Lovecraft, I definitely recommend reading through that uh, to see his take on things. I think it opens a lot of of, of doors to to things we were actually just talking about. He says uh, the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear. Absolutely. And the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown. And uh, he thinks it's uh, it just instinctual, built into us to be, you know, a- a- afraid in response to our environment. Uh, because according to him, you know, there are no easy answers. It, and, and it just seems that uh, the universe is is cold and uncaring and you know all we have in front of us is death you know uh, it, this whole thing uh, reminds me also of a a poem by uh, Edgar Allan Poe called City by the Sea it's got a lot of the same mm. uh, pictures and of course in the end of that poem the city by the sea ends up being it's a graveyard you know and uh, what he's saying in that briefly is that uh, ultimately we're all just we're bound for the graveyard <laughs> you know and, uh, uh, mm. the universe has an expiry too, day <laughs> yeah didn't he take a but lot just... of opium too like around Poe. Sega? Didn't, didn't Poe take a lot of opium as well uh that's it, it was definitely rumored that he was uh he did that and uh, and did a lot of drinking I've, I've seen things that said uh that those were not true so you know who knows, oh. but but yeah, that's definitely part of his reputation. Nineteenth century, I mean, it, it, it basically there was a plague of of opium use. It, it was it was, I mean, it still is in a way, but it was extremely common for people to be addicted to opium. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> you know, for a guy with with Poe's demeanor, I would say stay away from the central nervous system depressants. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although that, that that really did uh, ha- have a lot to do with making him who he is, I think, if that is true, that he was, you know, a user or abuser. Uh, he, he certainly had that that dark view of existence. Now, uh, one of the one of the things that surprised me uh, was that it was opium, right? So it, it opens with, uh, and I think this is why I found a little bit of difficulty, you know, the gearing down. I was as I was saying to to start it. He says. He just starts talking about opium, and I'm like, okay. And then he says, De Quincey, who's that? I don't know that. I had to look him up. He, he's yeah. the guy who wrote Confessions of an Opium Eater, right. uh, po- the uh, poet. And the other guy, uh, Baudelaire, is a poet as well, another um, poet addicted to opium. Um, so he says that their, their writings about opium are well understood, and everybody knows them. But nobody knows about this thing about opium. Uh, that apparently it's a delusional or a, du- a delusion, uh, a hallucinogen, <laughs> um, in a way. And I, I, I don't think that this is exactly true. Do you know? Has anyone here had morphine or uh, opium or anything like that? Because I, no, it's on my bucket list. But... <laughs> <laughs> Later on, I'm, I'll get to it. Don't worry. <laughs> Oh, no, I've, I've had, I have had strong opiates this week, having just had an operation. Oh, really? And, um, they do knock you out into a kind of this sort of waking dream state. Yeah, that's um, <clears throat> And this is where your poet was, opium was very popular in the poetic set in the 18th and the, even in the early 20th century. 
because it was seen as the decadent drug. It was the shortcut to inspiration of you smoke the opium, then you have these opium dreams and see these, you know, He's wild right. vistas and um, <laughs> inspiration, you know, go dig in. <laughs> well, uh, what it made me think of is uh, my my father had uh, died of cancer in the hospital with, with um, strong morphine. Um, and he was, when he was talking, it was frightening because what he said made no sense, right? Um, and you'd say, oh, well, maybe that's cancer. Uh, you know, it's in his brain. Uh, that makes sense. Or maybe it's the morphine or it's maybe it's a combination thereof. And I was thinking, uh, okay, it could be that. But I think that if this story was written in the 1960s, it wouldn't be morphine. It would be LSD, right? Oh, definitely. Yes. Yeah. And, and it's just LSD was not invented at that point, at that time. So he's using the drugs available. Um, and, and yet, I, I also think that because morphine, uh, it says opium, but let's um, think of the word morphine. Morphine and Morpheus, right, is dream, mm-hmm. right? And this is the connection I've never seen before, that um, I've never taken LSD or any, I, I really haven't taken any drugs at all. So I can't say, but my understanding of what people who, have had these drugs are doing is it seems like they're they're taking a waking dream like as a matter of fact uh i think one of the points he may be trying to make is uh like uh aldous huxley uh timothy leary in the 60s uh, they you know we're talking about using hallucinogenics and those type of drugs to open the doors of perception so it's not so much uh, hallucinogenic as it is opening the doors to some realities that you know we were not immediately familiar with. Uh, it's it's opening the doors to ultimate reality, you know, uh, outside yeah. of Plato's cave of shadows and into the real world, where you know, fill in the blanks, where H.P. Uh, Lovecraft or uh, or Edgar Allan Poe would tell you that, uh, you know, inevitably it's all doom and gloom and horror. Mm-hmm. And Philip K. Dick as well, to a certain extent. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, there, I was just thinking of a Philip K. Dick story, uh, I think a, an interview I heard recently, where he was talking about a friend of his who wanted to take LSD. And he said, well, um, what would you think of this scenario, he said. And and she gave her answer, and he says, you definitely should not take LSD, because yeah. if your disposition is towards the conspir- conspiratorial and, and um, uh, sort of a negative, cynical view of other people's motives, um, then LSD is not for you, because... Yeah, it's, it's definitely all about mindset and environment. Uh, in, in the Doors of Perception, which is a book that uh, Aldous Huxley wrote about his experiences with mescaline, um, he he definitely uh, came to the conclusion, and it, you know it's it's been moved into the the you know I don't know common sense knowledge of drug users ever since that uh, you know you have to control your environment, and if you have an an, an attitude that's negative, what it's going to do is just uh, blow up and accentuate that. Uh, so if, uh, 
you know, if, if a person is, is, there are people who should absolutely not take it. I think parenthetically that that's most people, <laughs> but, <laughs> uh, but if one was to, to deal with, to experiment with things like that, it, it's all about controlling the environment and controlling the attitude because, uh, you know, a, a, as you depart from reality and having any control over it, you don't want to feel that it, it's going to negatively impact you because, you know, the way you're going to react is going to be not good. Right. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm not uh, sort of dispositionally inclined to do it uh, just because I don't, I'm not a, drug interested person i i have no trouble with regular reality but um i i don't i don't necessarily think it would be bad because most of the dreams that i have that are even nightmarish are more interesting than they are uh frightening and I, do you think that that it, there is a connection between just what dream is and what what's going on in in these quote unquote trips you know mm -hmm. Uh, it's I, definitely I, the same. T sorry, go on. No, you go ahead. All right. It's definitely the same. It's the same context, except that in a drug-induced state, you have more control, whereas in a dream, you're passive. But it's the same journey into the unconscious. <clears throat> and it's like a drug will bring out what's in your unconscious in various ways for you to interact with, um, which is why kind of drug-taking and all kinds of different ways to skew your perception were populist with decadent poets, uh, probably with horror writers and surrealist artists. <clears throat> you know, um, there's a story, and I'm trying to find it, and I'm not having much luck with it, um, that's based on a true story, a really good short story um, called Mouthpiece uh, by Edward Wellen, one of my favorite stories. Um, and it's about a uh, computer program that is invented after somebody's dead based upon it's an artificial intelligence based upon the drug ravings of uh or the 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 uh, insane speech given uh in an interview uh by an FBI agent to a gangster who was shot there was a gangster in the 20s or 30s who had been shot in the gut and he's dying in the hospital and the FBI is at his bed um recording his his answers to this interview and uh, because he's under morphine and he's got you know he's got a massive fever he's dying all his answers make no sense at all but each sentence leads to the next sentence in a very um sort of dream logic kind of sense so you know he might say something like the umbrella is in the nightstand where you keep the books <laughs> you say what? <laughs> and the book has all the revelations of uh, a theater. What? It's all connected, right? All you connect all these things up, and then of course in the story, the the program uh, can is created as a way to decode the information that's enwrapped in his ravings. Wow. And awesome. Awesome. It sounds really interesting, right? And then, of course, the the AI um, actually takes on the motivation of the of the guy who who the the gangster and tries to get revenge. <laughs> uh, really, really cool story, and it's it's uh it's old tech. It's uh, uses uh, tele. It's before the internet, so um, very very cool story. Um, but 
the, I've all, uh, since then I'm, I'm just trying to remember this. It was based on a true event. Um, let's see if I can find. Is it that the Testament of Dutch Schultz? That's it. Dutch yes, Schultz. Yeah. Yes. Will, William Burroughs and, uh, was obsessed with it. And a few, it, it crops up all over Robert Anton Wilson as well. The last Testament of Dutch Schultz is one of the things that keeps turning up in really odd places and in odd connections appropriately, you know? Yeah. Um, it, it is a, it, if you've read it, it's, it's, um, it's, bizarre right it is bizarre in the way that a dream is um and yet when you're in a dream things don't normally seem bizarre to you they seem completely logical and normal and that that transition i I think is in the story we can go back and this is when you want to do the dream interpretation sort of thing you 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 it's all written down you say okay and let's look at this in the clear light of day Oh, that's what I was dreaming? That makes no sense. <laughs> um, but when it's written as a fiction story, right, um, uh, you want to be able to interpret what's going on and I extract value from it. This is probably why, uh, you know, people want, people are interested in what their dreams mean as symbols and such. Maybe in the same way that people are interested in, you know, what the, uh, the stars can tell them about their lives. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it gives you some, uh, you know, insight into your, uh, your subconscious that what, uh, what Jim was talking about before. And I think a lot of the, uh, imagery that, that Lovecraft uses and that, that Poe uses, uh, really speak to that. You know, it, uh, they're, they're, they're just rife with, uh, metaphorical, images uh you know from uh the self being a haunted palace to uh the the environment that he's in on the beach being uh being destroyed and and eaten away uh you know being a metaphor for existence it's uh it's it's fascinating stuff and if you can really find out where that person is coming from uh it it, it can take a story like this which you know, it is at least at first not really all that interesting, uh, and, and really give it a lot of meat on its bones. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at how much meat we've given. We've been talking for an hour about <clears throat> eighteen minute story. I think that shows a lot. I've got a, I've got a little clip. The last thing of uh, Dutch Schultz on his deathbed said, "This is a uh, <laughs> Sergeant Conlon says, who shot you? Answer: I don't know. I didn't even get a look." don't know who could have done it. Anybody, kindly take off my shoes. <laughs> yeah. uh, he was told that they are off. No, there is a handcuff on them. <laughs> the Baron says these things. I know what I am doing here with my collection of papers. It isn't worth a nickel of two guys like you or me, but to a collector it's worth a fortune. It is priceless. I am going to turn it over to turn you back to me. Please, Henry, I am so sick now. The police are getting many complaints. Look out. I want that G-note. Look for Jimmy Valenti, for he is an old pal of mine. Come on, come on, Jim. Okay, okay. I am all through. Can't do another thing. Look out, Mama. Look out for her. You can't beat him. Police, Mama. Helen, Mother, please take me out. I will settle the indictment. Come on. Open the soap ducats. <laughs> the, <laughs> the chimney sweeps. Talk to the sword. Shut up, you 
You've got a big mouth. Please help me. Henry, Max, come over here. French-Canadian bean soup. I want to pay. Let them leave me alone. Wow. Stream of unconsciousness. Totally. <laughs> Just in the middle of all that French-Canadian bean soup. What? <laughs> it's like you can almost see the connection between a lot of the stuff. And earlier he was talking in the same interview, he's talking about uh, uh, Francis. Right, there's a woman, wife's uh, Dutch Schultz's wife is Francis, right, and and then French people. He he starts talking about French people, right, because he hears Francis, right. It's like this is Francis, because <laughs> he and, but he's he's talking about French people, and they're talking about his wife. <laughs> it's it's uh, sad and disturbing, and. Very so does it make does that make you want to try opium or not necessarily? Uh, I think I think that I probably have this experience every night when I go to go to Dreamland, and I just don't remember it very well. I I think there's, you know, if you've ever tried to write down your dreams, they 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 can be very funny and very strange, and they kind of tell you. I think they tell you a lot about who you are and what your interests are, but uh, I don't think that they are. I don't think they give you deep insight into the universe as much as they give you uh, more of an understanding of yourself. Yeah. All all my dreams are about books. You know, like I find a secret library and I, yeah, the, one of the most vivid ones I have that I, I've told the story many times. I'm swimming through New York, right? Swimming through New York and I see a tall skyscraper and I say, oh, I wonder what's in there. So I dive down under the water, go through a window and come up inside the building where there are platforms floating, or like little barges floating. And on top of the barges or platforms uh, are tables, and on top of the tables are many books. And I think, this is wonderful. I climb up onto one of the barges, I start looking at the books, and they're all books that I've always wanted to get, you know, very rare paperbacks that I've combed many a bookstore looking for. And I realize that I can't take them out because I don't have a, a bag in which to put them. They will all get wet. So I sit on the dock for some time, and then I wake up. <laughs> wow. It's like, you are, you are tells deep. you about my dreams, right? Anxiety about losing books. <laughs> you are deeply disturbed. <laughs> yeah, clearly. Sounds like that librarian YA series, where the librarian goes on different adventures. I don't know that one. Who's the it was, author? It was, uh, I... I can't figure it out, but uh, it was adapted for TV. Oh, uh, the the quest of the librarian. I think so. Uh, yeah, he has like uh, he has sixteen uh, PhDs or something. <laughs> it's a pretty pretty. Uh, it's it's a tongue in cheek sort of um, what's it called? Uh, Indiana Jones style adventure series with a librarian as the as the main. Is the main character. He's a librarian, a librarian scientist major, I think, in his last degree. That sounds right. I don't really have that many vivid dreams anymore. Maybe it's my age or I'm not getting enough sleep. I, I kind of wish I had uh, more exotic dreams. You have, to, you have to sort of interrupt them and then immediately write them down. Yeah, I they, might be forgetting. They're not designed to stay. They don't stay. Right? The only way to keep them is to write them down and to immediately get them on paper. I should have a dream diary right next to my bed. Mm -hmm. If you want. I mean, I think I think they're probably perfectly ordinary 
weird adventures. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that makes any sense. <laughs> Thanks for the vote of confidence. No, no, I, I, I mean, think about it. Perfectly ordinary, strange adventures, right? Right. Everybody has these perfectly ordinary, strange adventures. I think every night when they go to sleep. <clears throat> oh, I think I read somewhere that uh, puns are big for the subconscious, like Francis the Francis. I think Samuel Delaney said that somewhere. Sounds right. But as uh, Freud said, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. Right. <laughs> I think that was Drepto Marx. <laughs> <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. Children will always be afraid of the dark, and men with minds sensitive to hereditary impulse will always tremble at the thought of the hidden and fathomless worlds of strange life which may pulsate in the ghosts beyond the stars. I'm scared now.